This is American History TV's Lectures in History podcast. This week, Grove City College President Paul McNulty teaches a class on the development of the U.S. Constitution. Well, good evening. Welcome to class number two of our study of the U.S. Constitution. It's great to see you all here tonight. Um, Last week, we looked at the history, a brief look at history that led to the drafting of the Constitution. I want to just recap that quickly tonight as we start, because as I tried to communicate last week, the drafting of our Constitution, the history of its formation, is extraordinary to say the least. It is um, a remarkable moment in all of world history. And we are here at 233 years later, and our Constitution is um, in the news daily, uh, being referred to as we um, almost speak here tonight in the United States Senate um, again and again in reference to um, one particular aspect of the Constitution. But again, um, it's uh, alive and well. And so to think about the fact that this came together from a period of mid-May until mid-September of uh, 1787 is really remarkable. So we recall from last week that we said that the Revolutionary War, and you know, a lot of folks aren't really clear on the sequencing, and it's important to know it, that conflict began in Lexington and Concord and Massachusetts in 1774. And uh, these very independent colonies, all British colonies that operated with their own governments and their own leadership and so forth, suddenly had to come together and form basically a military alliance. And um, it wasn't easy for them to do that. Uh, They had a lot of hesitation and concern about what it meant to actually be together. But the enemy um, was the justification for their alliance. And so they formed that alliance with the First Continental Congress and In 1775, they come together by, of course, July 76. They make a declaration of independence together. And now we see see a nation starting to be born, at least for purposes of declaring their independence and um, uh, working together for a common military purpose. Now, um, a year and a half after that, Uh, they formed the Articles of Confederation. And uh, the Articles of Confederation become the next step in an effort to have some type of connection between these colonies. We looked last week at the Articles of Confederation and we we noted that uh, it referred to, uh, the, the colonies referred to themselves as a firm league of friendship, an interesting way to describe this new United States, um, almost like sort of NATO or you know, some type of uh, international treaty of countries, individual, individual countries coming together. It took three and a half years for those articles to be ratified and become effective. So think about that. Um, here, the necessity to form a nation was clear, and they put together articles that are very loose, don't require much. Um, very minimal in terms of government structure, and yet it took three and a half years for everybody to get on board and agree to them. Um, And yet we see, of course, severe um, 
limitations, significant weaknesses to the Articles of Confederation. Uh, By the way, as those Articles of Confederation were um, being um, uh, considered, um, well, shortly after they were considered, they were approved uh, by a sufficient, uh, or by all the states, by um, uh, March of, of 1781, uh, The British surrendered at Yorktown in October of 81, so military conflict was over by the end of 81. And so now there is sort of peace, although the British um, Army is still present in in New York, and it took a little while for them to actually leave uh, the the new Union. But um, during this time, the Articles now are are, um, in operation, and the limitations are very clear. Uh, during that time, we see that the Articles of Confederation, um, they, they did not provide for an executive branch. There was no independent judiciary. There was only a one-body, one-house Congress. Everyone had to basically be in agreement to do anything. Uh, it uh, gave the states tremendous power, virtually all power. And, uh, and as a result, lots of things were going on in the states that were um, really... Um, um, unsettling with regard to recognition of, of um, property rights and, and, and doing justice. And this was something that Madison was especially concerned about. Um, that period of time that, by the way, that 11 years between the Articles of Confederation and then finally uh, 1787 and the Constitutional Convention is a fascinating period. And as I was preparing, I pulled from my shelf a book called The Confederation and the Constitution. And um, this is a book that I had to buy for my early American history course in 1977, I think, <laughs> a very long time ago. Um, but I keep all of my books, and uh, especially I was a history major, so I kept all of my books. And so for those of you who like books, you know, maybe when you're in your 60s, you'll still have some of your college books around. And uh, I have a lot of mine. So anyway, it was, it was useful. And, uh, and uh, uh, it's a fascinating period of time in which the country is, again, trying to come together and be a nation. Well, it wasn't working. And as I talked about last week, um, Alexander Hamilton was especially concerned. And so there was a meeting of five states in Annapolis in 1786, and at at that meeting, um, Hamilton uh, was pushing for uh, the uh, Congress to call a special convention to presumably modify the Articles of Confederation. And uh, he was successful, and uh, in February of 87, the Congress did call for a, cons- a constitutional convention. And this constitutional convention was instructed to do what was necessary to fix the problems of the Articles of Confederation. And uh, as we said last week, something much different than that occurred. Uh, in the book that I've recommended to you, uh, the Paulson book on the Constitution, uh, they refer to it, father and son Paulson, refer to it as basically a coup d'etat, that uh, the, the framers came together and f- formed a document that was um, completely new. 
They threw out the Articles of Confederation, formed this new constitution, something that was really way beyond their mandate, and uh, were able to get that actually uh, ratified. So um, that itself was a um, major milestone in American history. So Hamilton was, in a sense, the instigator who was able to get this uh, convention called and to encourage it to um, be bold and take action. George Washington was um, brought to chair the proceedings, and he didn't say much as chair, but he encouraged them also to, to be bold and do what's necessary. Madison was the architect, the one who did the most work, the one who came prepared um, to really um, brought a constitution basically with him and uh, was prepared to lead everyone through it, didn't miss anything in the proceedings and took extensive notes, and it's his notes that we can rely on the most to know what happened during that remarkable convention. Uh, Wilson from Pennsylvania was a, kind of a draftsman who helped work with um, Madison to get the provisions right. And then Morris, Governor Morris, was the wordsmith who wrote so many of the words that have um, become famous, and uh, the preamble in particular. When Madison came prepared, he came with the Virginia plan, we said. And the Virginia plan called for basically what we think of today in the structure of the Constitution, the separation of powers and federalism and so forth. That's tonight's um, focus. But the one weakness in the Virginia plan was that it called for representation based on population for the House and the Senate. So there was a bicameral legislature, and uh, that was going to be um, uh, an improvement over the Articles of Confederation. That wasn't unprecedented. That was already existing in Parliament. Uh, but the Senate would be elected based upon a population. That was objected to uh, by the um, smaller states, of course, and the great compromise came forward, which was uh, someone, something from Roger Sherman of Connecticut, so it's sometimes called the Connecticut Compromise. The great compromise was, no, we like what you've done, Mr. Madison. It's, it's a great framework. There are many great provisions, but this one won't work. We're going to go with something different. Every state will get two senators, and we'll have a representative, a population-based representative um, uh, elections for the House, and so that was how they worked that out. And uh, there were many other debates over lots of other very important things. So we'll talk about a few of those tonight. But by September 17th, they were able to sign that constitution. Nearly everyone, not everyone, but nearly everyone, three famous um, participants ended up not signing, but um, the, um, they came together to sign the constitution. And, um, and then the, ratif the ratification process began. Now, at this point, we have to appreciate how controversial the document was. It had strayed from the mandate as to um, amending the Articles of Confederation. Um, the states, so independent-minded, were very concerned about what had been created. And um, there were objections throughout the colonies and as the various states held their, their ratification conventions, and by the way, that's the way it was set up. They'd have 
special conventions for purposes of ratification, not just a vote in their state legislatures. That in those conventions, there were um, uh, really fierce debates about whether or not this was the right direction. And the concerns were over the fact that there was a national government being created that would have too much power. And the other was there wasn't enough protection for rights, that, that there were enough safeguards in place. And between the two things, the centralization of power and the lack of guaranteed rights, uh, there was um, a lot of difficulty in getting the states on board. One great description that is part of a wonderful introduction to my copy of the Federalist Papers. I'm going to talk about them in just a moment. But um, a uh, Columbia historian, Columbia University historian, who wrote the uh, introduction to this publication of the Federalist, um, Robert Ferguson, um, he describes it this way. We forget how controversial the Constitution was in the moment of its birth. The document that now governs the United States was drafted in secrecy by men who knew that they had acted beyond the mandate given to them. Sent as state delegates to Philadelphia in the summer of 1787 to discuss problems in the new union, they had been told to make any adjustments within the Articles of Confederation as the official compact of union. The Articles had been drafted in the anti-authoritarian moment and spirit of 1776. It was a companion document to the Declaration of Independence, and it left autonomy in the hands of the individual states. Nonetheless, five years would pass before the um, apprehensive states approved even those, uh, this loose coalition, and they did so in 1781 only after many revisions by revolutionary leaders who feared centralized authority. The framers of the Constitution in Philadelphia basically ignored these fears. Instead of tinkering with the arrangement, they junked the Articles of Confederation altogether and wrote out their own document of fundamental principles. When they were done, they had substituted a much stronger ideal of union than the suspicious compromisers of the original Confederation had contemplated or would have allowed. So you see what... um, what was um, in front of those who supported the new constitution in order to be able to um, get support throughout the uh, new country. And so that um, brings us to the Federalist Papers. About a month after signing the uh, constitution, about a month after September 17th, 1787, The first one of these op-ed pieces, as we think of them today, they were essays, appeared in a New York publication, late October of 1787, drafted by Alexander Hamilton. And so he wrote the first paper in defense of the new Constitution. Now, Hamilton, Madison, and John Jay, who wasn't even at the Constitutional Convention, didn't sign the, the, the Constitution, Uh, The three of them teamed up to write these Federalist Papers. There were 85 in total. And they were published from October all the way through to um, August of 88. 
At one point, before they even were all done, they were collected together in a, in a publication, and that's when they were first called the Federalist. And today we refer to them as the Federalist Papers. Jay only wrote five of them. He um, became ill at a certain point and wouldn't uh, be able to contribute more. So Hamilton and Madison split the, the job. Hamilton did more, a bit more than, than Madison. Um, they used a pen name for them. Uh, their pen name was Publius, named after the, uh, a founder of the Roman Empire, Publius Valerius. That wasn't um, too unusual for the time to have a pen name. That was seen as kind of a, a very um, statesman-like um, educated person's way of communicating with a, a, a pen name. It was known, of course, who were the advocates for the new document. And um, Jefferson, who again wasn't at the convention, didn't sign the Constitution, uh, when he got a chance to read the Federalist Papers, these essays, he said, quote, they're the best commentary on the principles of government whichever was written. Let me read just um, a few lines, actually a first few um, lines of the first Federalist paper by Alexander Hamilton. This is how the Federalist papers begin. After full experience, this is by Alexander Hamilton, after full experience of the insufficiency of the existing federal government, you are invited to deliberate upon a new constitution for the United States of America. The subject speaks of its own importance, comprehending in its consequences nothing less than the existence of the union, the safety and welfare of the parts of which it is composed, the fate of an empire in many respects the most interesting in the world. It has been frequently remarked that it seems to have been reserved to the people of this country to decide by their conduct and example the important question whether societies of men are really capable or not of establishing good government from reflection and choice or whether they are forever destined to depend for their political constitutions on accident and force. Uh, that is just a taste of the brilliance of the Federalist Papers. And so those papers came alongside the ratification process and helped to address every argument, every issue that was being thrown up against the new Constitution. So let's jump in now to the new Constitution and see some things that for many of you are very familiar. And for those of you who took the class so you could understand it, I'm not going to make assumptions, and I want to make sure we're all on the same page. So let's look at the structure of the Constitution. It's brilliantly simple, isn't it? You have the preamble, the preamble and its eloquence reflecting the language of the Declaration of Independence with regard to the, um, the, uh, the will of the people uh, to express their own uh, form of government. And so we have the legislative branch, Article 1, the executive branch, Article 2, the judiciary, the judicial branch, Article 3. You often hear of Article 3 judges. That means 
a judge appointed according to this uh, article of the Constitution. Um, state to state relations and federal to state relations all brought together in Article 4. Article 5, how the Constitution is amended. Article 6, dealing with national debts. And Article 7, how to ratify the Constitution. And then the Bill of Rights. And there are 27 amendments to the Constitution in the Bill of Rights. Now, the Bill of Rights in particular is referred we refer to that first 10 amendments because that's the bill that was introduced by Madison. And so to be perfectly precise, you have the Bill of Rights and those first 10 amendments that were ratified. And then you've had additional amendments uh, since then. Uh, there was a, quite a stretch of time um, between the initial Bill of Rights and a, a couple of things done immediately after that. And then the Civil War and the Uh, the 13th Amendment. All right, so um, that's the structure. And then in the structure of the Constitution, and you can look, of course, at the one you have uh, in your hand, you have basically articles, sections, and clauses. And so when we talk about the Constitution, we always say, well, that's in Article 1, Section 2, Clause 3. And then there are terms that if you go to law school, you learn about key words that are referred to as clauses as well. So, for example, when we get to Article 4, we'll talk about the supremacy clause. And a supremacy clause is located within Article 4, section such and such, and clause such and such. So that's um, a, a, a useful term to refer to portions within each article. All right, so then that's kind of the outline, too, of our class course, when we get to the Bill of Rights, we'll spend probably about half the class uh, in future lectures going through those amendments. But uh, we're going next week, we're going to talk about judicial interpretation philosophy. How do we actually understand what this document says? And then we'll jump into the legislative branch the week after that. All right. um, So that's our structure. Now, the Bill of Rights is an important part for us to sort of uh, touch on right now. If you look at your Constitution, turn to um, Article 5. That is on page 43 of the little booklet. And here we see how the Constitution is to be amended. So basically what this says in Article 5 is there are two ways to amend this Constitution. The first is that an amendment to the Constitution passes the Congress. Both houses of the Congress have to vote by two-thirds, two-thirds vote, in order for the uh, proposed amendment to go forward. And from there, it goes forward to the states. And and then, you see, it says, two-thirds of the several states shall be required to um, approve of the proposed amendment, all right? Now, that's the one way to do it. There is another way to amend the Constitution that's never been done, and that's to have another constitutional convention. And if you read the language of Article 5, it describes what it would require to actually have another constitutional convention. Now, of course, 
um, one advantage of a constitutional convention is you get a lot of work done and you could do it um, more effectively in terms of changing the Constitution. But of course, the great danger of a constitutional convention is once you get those folks together, well, you remember what happened in the summer of 1787 when they were supposed to amend the articles? They came up with a little bit of a different document. So if you brought a lot of people together in the state, they brought the states together, their delegates to have a constitutional convention, it would be wide open. There was a movement um, in the 90s to actually um, try to form a constitutional convention. And there, that's still going on today. I have friends who from time to time will tell me about uh, um, getting mail and so forth, calling for a constitutional convention. It would be quite, a, quite a, um, an amazing thing if that were to actually occur, and it hasn't happened. So in the process of the states considering whether to ratify the Constitution, there was a great deal of attention on this idea that we needed to have guaranteed rights. And um, it was raised again and again. New York basically said, um, we're only going to be on board if you have a Bill of Rights added. Uh, that wasn't a new point, but specifically that was their um, suggestion and um, really, really demand for going along. And so Madison and others basically promised that once the Congress was formed with the new Constitution, it would be the first order of business. There was some resistance on the part of the Federalists to actually have a Bill of Rights. They thought it wasn't necessary since the, um, the Constitution enumerated what the powers of the new government would be, and therefore, if they weren't enumerated, no one should worry that those powers would exceed their boundaries and rights would be threatened. But, of course, that wasn't um, a sufficient response. And, in fact, to be fair, there were... There are enumerated powers that are very broad, and it wasn't clear at all as to where they might go with that. So um, for that reason, Madison promised to introduce the Bill of Rights and, and did. As soon as the new Congress was formed in June of 89, the, um, the Bill of Rights was introduced by Madison. The House Madison became a member of the House of Representatives uh, when it was um, initiated, and, uh, by the, uh, and then... Um, the rights were sent on past two-thirds in the House, past two-thirds in the Senate. Uh, by September, it's sent to the states for approval. And then you have an interesting thing that happens. That, that proposal, those amendments, actually were 12, not 10. So 12 amendments went to the states for ratification. But two didn't make it. Actually, to be clear about this, Madison's proposal had 12. Um, one of those didn't even make it the two-thirds cut. Uh, one did, but it didn't get confirmed by the states. Now, if you turn in your book to the 27th Amendment, which is on um, page 56, you see this. The 27th Amendment was proposed on September 25th, 1789. That's the date that the um, Congress completed passing the amendments and sent them on for the states to consider. And um, it was ratified on May 7th. What? 
1792? No, 1992. 1992. It took a little while for that amendment to actually get the, uh, the two-thirds support. So Michigan finally passed this amendment in 1992. The law, it says no law varying uh, the compensation for the services of, set, of the senators and representatives shall take effect until an election of representatives shall have intervened. So basically all it says is Congress can't vote itself a pay raise. It can vote it for a pay raise, but it won't get the money. The next Congress will get the pay raise. That's what this says. And uh, it finally dawned on people in the 1980s or so that, hey, there was this amendment way back in the beginning with James Madison and the Bill of Rights that never got finished. And it actually was a nice amendment to kind of stick it to those members of Congress who want pay raises. Let's pass it. And so a bunch of states got busy. And by 1992, Michigan was the last state they needed. And it became the 27th Amendment. So you have 12. One bites the dust while still in Congress. 11 go to the states. One doesn't make it. 10 do. And that's why we have an original 10 um, amendments to the Bill of Rights. And in fact, the First Amendment that we always think of, of course, with free press and freedom of religion, uh, that was actually the third amendment of the original proposal. All right, so um, that's a, a story. And by the way, uh, this is a timely conversation because if you've been paying attention to some of the um, lesser headlines in the news, there is now a 28th Amendment out there that is um, going to be the subject of greater uh, attention uh, increasingly. What happened here is that in the 1970s, the Equal Rights Amendment, guaranteeing uh, equal rights for women, uh, pro a prohibition against discrimination on the basis of sex, was passed by the House and the Senate by two-thirds and sent to the states for ratification. Now, here's an interesting thing. Amendments that are proposed to the states have typically had timelines for which they can be, in which they can be considered. In other words, not the 27th Amendment. That one did obviously had no timeline. That original group didn't have a timeline, and so that one hung out there for 200 years or whatever, right? But most of them have a timeline. The ERA had a timeline of seven years, and so it needed to be... It, it needed to be either ratified by the early 1980s or not. Well, it didn't get ratified, but Virginia just voted within the last few weeks to ratify uh, the 28th Amendment that was proposed by uh, Congress back in the 70s. And that put the number over the threshold. So now the question is, does it become the 28th Amendment? Well... The position being taken by the National Archives, which is kind of an interesting thing too, like who decides? The keeper of the Constitution. Uh, it's not being recorded as the 28th Amendment because it passed that timeline. Time, time well, in just the last day or so, three attorneys general, state attorneys general, Virginia, Nevada, and I think Illinois, have filed a lawsuit against the archivist claiming that that needs to be recorded as the new 28th Amendment. The Department of Justice has taken the position that the time is up and it can't be done. And the question will be, are even timelines constitutional? 
because there's nothing in here about timelines. And the language isn't in the actual text of the new amendment. And so the question is, can you still have those limitations? Very interesting. It's happening right now. So we'll see where that goes. All right. Let's move on now to the major principles of the Constitution. You've got the structure in your mind. You understand how we got there, how the, this simple document was created, and then um, a provision for amending it, and it has been amended. But what are the core principles that really shape the document? And the key question in thinking about the principles of our Constitution is the question of where does the power reside? It's all about political power. Who holds it? Is it shared? How is it shared? That's the issue. These framers understood well because they were basically coming from a, a system of government that had a king who had abused that power over the centuries and, and had elected parliament that was trying to establish its own power. And so the question of vulnerability and risks associated with power was the, fir uh, the, the, the first issue. And there were basically three principles that shaped that question or answered that question of what to do about power. And the first is republicanism. I want to show you, though, uh, before I jump into that, something that um, I saw when I was at the, um, the Constitution Museum in Philadelphia. I mentioned this museum um, last week. I'm a museum nerd. I, I go to museums all the time. I went to the post office museum during the winter break. Okay. <laughs> I didn't see any of you there at the post office museum. <laughs> but I thought it was really cool. Uh, but anyway... Um, uh, the Constitution Museum in Philadelphia is great. And as I was going through it really, really, really slowly, um, I came to this little spot. And, and I looked at this display, and what this was, all of the sort of great ideas that had been known by the founders, by the framers at the time of the creation of our country. Um, these were learned people. And, and Madison, of course, was in his 30s, and so was Alexander Hamilton. But Madison, in particular, his, his awareness of political philosophy at that point was profound. This little display is really cool because you push the little button, and it just gives you a little you know, excerpt. And I looked at that, and I thought, now that's the reading list that we ought to have for Huma. Now, um, so if you're not a senior, be prepared that next year we may tinker with uh, one of our humanities courses, and you can get a little preview right now. No, we're not going to do that. Um, but it would be great. And you have Montesquieu there on that group, and uh, he's mentioned in the Paulson's book as uh, one of the real influences for Madison. But, um, yeah, there's your reading list if you want to really get down into political philosophy. 
But as you understand more and more about the political philosophy that they knew well, you start to understand where these principles uh, came from. So let's start with uh, republicanism. Um, Let me read from Federalist Paper 39 because the defense or the explanation of this by James Madison really gets us clearly grounded in the idea. So in Federalist Paper 39, uh, this is what Madison says. The first question that offers itself is, whether the general form and aspect of the government be strictly Republican. It is evident that no other form would be reconcilable with the genius of the, Amer- of the people of America, with the fundamental principles of the revolution, or with the um, honorable determination which animates every votary of freedom. To rest all our political experiments on the capacity of mankind for self-government. If the plan of the convention, therefore, be found to depart from the Republican character, its advocates must abandon it as no longer defensible. So a strong statement by uh, Madison as to um, how committed uh, the uh, Constitution is to the idea that when we mean when we say republicanism, what we mean is that the all the government is formed by the people, that the people have direct or indirect control over all of those who serve in the national government. Um, that there wouldn't be hereditary or other ways in which power would be obtained. It would only be through the rights of the people to elect, to choose their representatives. So it would be a representative government, not direct democracy, but the representative government would be um, fully controlled by the choice of the people. So Article 4 guarantees a republican form of government. That's in the uh, Constitution. And in Article 1, Sections 9 and 10, it refers to titles of nobility and that you can't have the states can't establish titles of nobility and there'd be no federal titles of nobility. So trying to just basically get away from what they were so familiar with in um, Great Britain with having um, uh, hereditary and other forms of titles that came in one way or another from the uh, monarchy. So a basic concept that we would, uh, of course, take for granted today, but it does, um, it does have real impact in a lot of different ways. Uh, even the way the Senate was set up originally, where the state legislature would select the senators, um, this principle of republicanism you know, kind of pushed against that until they amended the Constitution to have direct election of senators. Um, we see this today, and I'm going to talk about this when we get to the... Um, we get to the uh, Article 2 in the executive, we're going to talk about the Electoral College at that point. And uh, there is definitely uh, a lot of discussion today about um, whether or not that's um, um, consistent 
sufficiently consistent with the uh, principles of a Republican government. Um, it, it is, but that's, that's um, part of the uh, debate. So this is the first of the uh, key principles. Now, the second principle is that of separation of powers, or as we um, often think of it, not, I shouldn't say or, which includes the idea of checks uh, and balances. Uh, here is where Federalist 51 comes into the, um, the mix. Now, I had you read Federalist 10 um, before tonight. And, oh, let me just uh, take a moment to say a few words about that before I, I um, jump into Federalist uh, 51. So Federalist 10 was the one I asked you to take a look at. And um, Federalist 10 is a remarkable essay that um, demonstrates what I was talking about before regarding the incredible knowledge, the, the political philosophy capability of Madison as he works his way through the question of how to control factions within government, factions that can do great harm to those who are in the minority, those who don't have the same amount of power. And, and Madison was deeply concerned about the way in which these factions, especially in the states, were operating and just running roughshod over those who didn't have a sufficient power. So he goes through in Federalist 10 the, the problems with, with um, these factions. He defines factions in Federalist 10 by saying a faction, I understand, um, a, by, fact, by a faction, I understand a number of citizens, whether amounting to a majority or a minority of the whole, who are united and actuated by some common impulse of, of passion or of interest adverse to the rights of other citizens or to the permanent and aggregate interests of the community. So he defines the problem in particular that way and, um, and then asks the question, what are we going to do about that given all of the um, difficulties that we see and the uh, troubles with controlling human behavior? He really looks at uh, just the, the, the fundamental um, uh, vulnerabilities of, of um, people to govern themselves. And he comes to the conclusion that it, um, it's, in, in one sense, human nature is what it is, uh, but that at the end of the day, we can try to control the effects of human nature. Um, and so he's got fantastic language to summarize these arguments. So strong, he says, is the propensity of mankind to fall into mutual animosities that where no substantial occasion uh, presents itself, the most frivolous and fanciful distinctions have been sufficient to kindle their unfriendly passions and excite their most violent conflicts. But the most common and durable source of factions has been the various and unequal distribution of property. Those who hold and those who are without property have ever formed distinct interests in society. And um, he gives examples of that. And then um, he talks about the fact that, that the causes of this cannot be removed, and therefore we have to control the effects. To secure the public good and private rights against the danger of such a faction, and at the same time to preserve the spirit and the form of popular government, is then the great object to which our inquiries are directed. Let me add that it is the great uh, desiratum by which this form of government can be rescued. Um, so he sets it up for why 
um, Republican form of government can actually be more effective in a growing country, which was very, very counter to what people thought. People thought that, that, the, that, that a, a government that is controlled by the people is fine and good in sort of a small, limited way, but that when you spread it out for a growing country, it wouldn't be effective. And he turns that argument completely around and says, no, this is actually the best way to secure people's rights um, by this kind of uh, Republican form of government. And, um, and so we have in, in um, Federalist 51 um, the really basic um, political philosophy of Madison that informs the Constitution. And it's often said that Federalist 10, I'm sorry, I should have said Federalist 10, Federalist 10 and Federalist 51, which is to come next, that those two documents uh, really uh, summarize, uh, of all the Federalist papers, uh, they capture the, um, the principles of the new government. So now to uh, separation of powers. Uh, that's where we get to Federalist 51. And in the interest of time, I'll let you read that between now and next week. The key there is to look at how uh, we see the reference to uh, double security. And by double security, we're talking about the security of the people's rights, liberty of the people. It's made secure by separating powers among the divisions of government, three branches, and also between the federal and state level. That's the double security. There's, these are co-coordinate branches of government, which is laid out in Federalist 49, but that's the main point, just co-coordinate, meaning that they are equal, separate and equal. They have overlapping powers. We um, saw a little clip of the war powers debate uh, last week. Um, that's a great example of the overlapping powers. The Congress has the uh, sole power to declare war, and yet the president is the commander-in-chief. He will decide how a war is executed, whether we're going to fight or not fight, uh, where we're going to fight, how we're going to fight. But Congress, again, has the power to declare war. Even legislation. Congress passes legislation, but the president signs the bill into law. Um, But if he vetoes the bill, Congress can override his veto. So you see, um, the founders were really thoughtful about how to try to create these balancing powers. Which brings me then to the final point I want to make tonight, and that's the impeachment power, because it's one of the checks and balances that we have in the um, Constitution. And it's the one that um, is getting a little attention these days. And so I thought I'd just make sure that you knew, from a um, a perspective of where it is in the Constitution, um, your way around on the... um, the power of impeachment. So Article 1, Section 2, Clause 5, you can look that up. Article 1, legislative power, right? Section 2, Clause 5. The House representatives shall have the sole power of impeachment. The House has the power to charge, basically, to, to bring an indictment against the president, the power of impeachment. Article 1, Section 3, Clauses 6 and 7. So now we're on to Section 3, Clauses 6 and 7. The Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. When sitting for that purpose, they shall be in oath or affirmation. And they actually take a special oath to start an impeachment trial. They all, the senators all stood there um, a couple weeks ago and did that, that special impeachment oath. And in fact, in 1990, 
2009, I was on the Senate floor as a part of the Clinton impeachment for the House managers. I was a lawyer for the House managers, and I was on the Senate floor, and I wrote Henry Hyde, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee's opening speech, and I used that, I wrote that language to play off the oath because the president had been accused of lying um, under oath, and so I thought we could have a pretty interesting connection to the oath and the oath, but didn't work so well. Anyway, um, uh, so the um, so you have the uh, the take the special oath, and then um, you see it goes on to say that um, uh, when the president of the United States is tried, the chief justice shall preside. So. Chief Justice Roberts has been sitting in the chair for the last couple of weeks, and no person shall be convicted without the concurrence of two-thirds of the members present. It further says judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. But the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to the law. By the way, this language about the president not being subject to prosecution um, until removed from office, and, and, um, and then also the idea um, that um, next um, is uh, Article 2. So we were in Article 1. Article 2, Section 2, Clause 1 says, The president shall have power to grant re- uh, reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States, except in cases of impeachment. So... Um, uh, and let me just finish. So there are four provisions. You have the Article 1, Section 2, Clause 5, about the House having the power. Article 1, Section 3, and Clauses 6 and 7 talk about the Senate and how the Senate shall have the sole power to, to impeach and that procedure, the oath of office, the Chief Justice presides, two-thirds required for a vote. And, um, and then you have Article uh, uh, 2, Section uh, 2, Clause 1, the President shall have... Uh, this uh, power to grant pardons, but not in case of impeachment. And then, finally, Article 2, Section 4, the President, Vice President, and all civil officers of the United, uh, 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 civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. And uh, it's interesting to note that um, Alan Dershowitz, a Harvard Law professor, when he was defending the President on the Senate floor, um, earlier this week, referred to the, the provisions involving pardoning for crimes and when the uh, president could be indicted to strengthen his argument that only crimes could be included in the definition of high crimes or misdemeanors, which is a key, key issue for the current impeachment process because the articles of impeachment against President Trump don't actually allege any particular criminal violation. And so one of the big questions is whether or not that meets the standard that's in the Constitution. Many scholars say it does, but Dershowitz is taking the position that it doesn't, and that's been a fascinating uh, debate. So those are the provisions within the Constitution. I know I said that very quickly. And then finally, just this little tidbit about impeachments. There have been 20 impeached officials in our history, 20. Three presidents, Johnson, Clinton, Trump. One Secretary of War, one Senator, 
and 15 judges. Secretary of War, Senator, 15 judges. Eight have been found guilty and removed. Seven acquitted. Others resigned before the trial. Uh, Only seven in the last 80 years. My favorite one is the very beginning. uh, The one, um, uh, uh, one Supreme Court justice. So I said there are 15 judges. One of them was a Supreme Court justice. Judge John Pickering from New Hampshire. And he was um, impeached in the early years of our country for intoxication on the bench. And uh, when he was, he had decided to appear before the House when they were having a consideration of the, um, the article of impeachment. And he testified in his own defense. And he said, when with reference to the um, intoxication, he said, I shall be sober tomorrow. I am now damn drunk. Not a really effective uh, uh, defense, in my view, but at least he was honest. Uh, uh, I can understand why somebody might want to drink before they had to appear before the House Judiciary Committee. Um, So anyway, that was 1802. Uh, We've had, so that's that's the track record of, of impeachment. Well, I'm afraid our time has run up. I'm going to now turn to your questions. Next week, we will pick up on federalism, just to uh, look at uh, coming attractions. We'll pick up on federalism. That'll be very quick. And then we're going to jump into one controversy, and that's the pro-slavery provisions that are in the Constitution. Um, Of course, I, I talk about the Constitution in glowing terms, but there is one major flaw to the original Constitution, a major flaw, and that was the way the original Constitution dealt with slavery. And in fact, the Constitution made slavery a bigger problem. And we're going to start next week with these three pro-slavery provisions, and then we'll jump into interpretation principles. So with that, let me see if anybody has any questions. You want to go ahead and take one right down there in the front? Yeah, you could stand. Yeah, it'd be probably better. Well, uh, hello? Uh, um, So I'm just wondering, actually, uh, I know that the New New Jersey plan contributed to having the Senate and the Constitution in in general, but I'm wondering if there's any standing arguments for having state representation now, because I'm sure a lot would agree, uh, many people would agree that we don't have, like, a loose confederation of of countries Mm -hmm. now, you Mm -hmm. know, like... I would assume we're more unified now than before, so is right. it still necessary? Yeah. You know? Well, my view, that's a great question. I, I think that the, the, the fundamental issue really hasn't changed that much in the sense that um, the largest states um, would exercise such significant control over the legislative branch and over the production of legislation. They would have um, significant control in the House, which is already in existence, and yet, given the size of the country, you know, it's, it's limited. You have so many districts in California and so many districts in, um, in Texas and, and New York. But if you then had a Senate that was similarly composed, um, and I suppose it would also have to be a much bigger body, right, because it would, um, whatever the apportionment would be, would have to assign 
at least something to the small states, and so that means the other states would just get bigger. And I think that what we would lose in that, of course, is something that we're desperately holding on to right now, and that is to try to build consensus um, for uh, legislative proposals by having all the states in some way, uh, not, all, not all the states, but have at least um, a majority of the states work together to um, uh, find common ground. I, I, part of the problem is here is that in your lifetime, you've seen so little of good legislating uh, it's been so bogged down for so long that it's hardly possible to remember it. Uh, but when I started on Capitol Hill as a young lawyer in 1983, uh, for the first you know, decade and a half or more of my career, I actually saw Congress work. <laughs> so you have to take my word for it that it actually can happen, um, that there actually were you know, efforts to try to reach across the aisle and find uh, consensus. It's just been so limited since then, but I do, don't think the solution is to push more power to the largest populated areas, which is what would happen. Um, another question, um, I'll come back there, but let me go back up to my friend back there. Yes, please. Um, so presumably the purpose of the Constitution is primarily to protect the rights of American citizens. Um, you know, how it goes about that is, you know, uh, one thing. But um, if the uh, Constitution allows for um, amending it and moreover repealing amendments um, and the first ten amendments, the Bill of Rights, are um, some of the rights that are meant to be protected, why were they made amendments and not uh, included in the original Constitution if presumably that was the Constitution's purpose. Yeah, well, first of all, let's be clear that there's nothing particularly uh, protected about the seven articles. They've already been amended by the amendments. So um, even if you had a, the original document had contained um, the rights that we see in the amendments, they would still have a vulnerability to them to be changed at some point down the road. So the founders saw that the Constitution would be subject to adaptation to circumstances that would unfold in the history of the country going forward. And they, and they really wanted that to be the case. But they also wanted it to be hard. They wanted it to be real work for it to be done so there'd be a stability. And that's why, uh, after the initial founding period, there was nothing uh, done to the Constitution until... After the Civil War, 1865, 13th Amendment, and the abolition of slavery. But for that period of time in between, that document just stayed as it was. So it's hard to change it. And so when you think about it, 27 amendments in all that period of time, it's not very many, but they have been made. And there have been really significant things that have been added to the Constitution, um, including both women and um, uh, essentially younger people being able to vote, uh, and, um, again, abolition of slavery, civil rights, um, you know, uh, really significant modifications. So I guess what I'm saying is that I think they got it right in that they made it possible to change the document, but they made it really hard, and they couldn't have done anything to protect anything in it um, with 
actually one minor exception to that statement, and it has to do with slavery, and we'll see this next week, that they put kind of a freeze for 20 years when they wrote the original Constitution um, on the, um, the ability of, of, of prohibiting states or prohibiting the importation of slaves. So the slave trade went on for 20 more years as a result of a constitutional protection. Uh, other than that, the Constitution um, has always been amendable, but I think in a responsible way. Does that get at what you were raising, talking about? Sort of. Do you want to come back real fast? Why not freeze especially the First Amendment, which is a big reason of why you know, colonists um, fled where they came from to America, religious freedom and freedom of speech? Yeah. Well, I mean, I just think that the, the notion that, that, that's, that the freedom of speech or freedom of the press, um, religious freedom, would be... <laughs> Maybe back off on that statement a bit because religious freedom is pretty threatened right now. Um, that it would be threatened to the extent of two-thirds of the House and two-thirds of the Senate and two-thirds of the states being able to all get in line to, to strip a right like that. That would be, um, at least in 1787, that would have been essentially unthinkable. Let me just get another question or so over here. Let's go right there. It's possible I'm ill-informed, but the current impeachment problem... Yes. Is obstruction of Congress not a criminal charge? You mentioned that no criminal charges were actually in this impeachment. Right. But there, didn't the Government Accountability Office, which is a independent office, mm-hmm. found him guilty of obstruction of Congress? Is that not a criminal charge? Well, let me just sort out a couple of things there. First of all, um, there's a crime called obstruction of justice, which is different than obstruction of Congress or not cooperating with Congress. There's no federal crime associated with... Uh, not cooperating with a congressional investigation. There is a federal crime in obstructing a lawful investigation by way of the destruction of documents or something of that sort. And even the House managers aren't making the argument that his, the president's lack of cooperation with the uh, House process amounted to the criminal obstruction of justice that we have in the U.S. Code. GAO's finding is not a criminal issue. GAO has no authority to make it a uh, opinion, form an opinion about a criminal law. What GAO found was that with regard to the president's legal responsibilities, and there they're just talking about how the law provides for the spending of money and um, whether or not the administration could withhold payments to Ukraine, they're focused on um, non-criminal aspects of what's legally required. So it doesn't get into this category of does anything the president done constitute a crime or not? And in the Q&A that's going on right now in the Senate, uh, this question of, of was a crime alleged is being conceded essentially that no, no crime has been alleged in these articles, though I think if I got my memory correct in what's been said, there may have been a comment made that, well, we might have been able to find a crime. We just didn't include them in these particular articles of impeachment. Okay? Thank you. I think I may have to wrap up with that one. Do I have time for one more question? Um, how about over here? Do I see a hand? Yes, please. Hi, so this might be a bit of a 
complicated question. I just wanted to get your take on it. Okay. So there's a movement among some states now called National Popular Vote, uh-huh. in which the if uh, enough states sign on to it, then the they will all give their electoral votes in the, in the presidential yes. elections to the popular vote winner, essentially undermining the electoral college and making the presidency a direct democratic election. Yes. Uh, is there anything in the Constitution that prohibits this, or is it possible that in the future we may um, not be a republic anymore and instead be a direct democracy? Yeah. That is a fantastic question, and I'm going to completely dodge it right now. But... <laughs> Because this isn't a one-and-done deal here, this is an actual class that will go on for the semester. When I get to Article 3, I'm going to talk about the election of the president. We're going to look at the Electoral College, and I'm going to remember your question, and we're going to address it then. I'd prefer to do it in the context of how the Electoral College works and how that, that you're right about that movement that's very interesting and, um, and whether or not that's actually got validity based upon what the Constitution says. So thanks for getting us started on that. All right, well, that's all for tonight. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org. 